Well, I just got back from vacation, and uh, my wife and I decided it would be fun to go backpacking again. While I was in seminary, we only got to go a couple times, and so we thought, we're going to go to Montana, and we're going to go up to Glacier National Park. My wife's from Montana, I'm from Wyoming, and I thought, let's get back in the woods. And so we packed it up, you know, we were the Clampets, and we put all our stuff in backpacks, and, you know, we were ready to go, and we were getting on the plane. But this year, we decided we'd use something a little different. We decided we would take an 11-month-old along because we thought, huh, what better to do than go backpacking with an 11-month-old? We thought, wow, that's brilliant. That wasn't until about 3 o'clock in the morning um, that we realized that maybe this whole backpacking thing, uh. But we got out there, and it was absolutely amazing to be there. The baby was, uh, okay. But we took her out in the woods, if you know what I'm talking about. But we were walking along this path on one of these, and we were looking down at what's called Lake McDonald. And my wife had never really been there. She'd been there like a long time ago, but I used to hike up there a lot. And so I'm taking her along with me and I'm showing her all the sights and these just amazing peaks and these glacier-fed lakes and these glaciers. And we're just like, gosh, man, it's so good to get out of the, just the concrete jungle and just go see how amazing God is. In fact, while I was there, I was looking at a tree and this is how weird I am. I was thinking God could have created boxes that could have taken in in carbon dioxide and kicked out oxygen. But isn't it amazing he made beautiful trees? Isn't that awesome? Like he could have just created the most mundane, ugly things, but he took these plants and made them green and beautiful and they suck in carbon dioxide that we breathe out and and they take it in and then they kick out oxygen. I mean, I just thought, gosh, God, you're awesome. But we're walking along one path as as we're about to turn this corner. Literally, as we turn it, Right in front of our face is this deer, a doe, a female deer. And um, so we're walking along and, as, and, as I, as, and we just stop and freeze, you know. And the deer, it was so funny. The deer, it, it's like, it must be so used to humans because it was like, hey, welcome to Glacier. If you don't mind, I'm going to stay right here. And she just is kind of moseying along and eating grass as she goes along. And I'm with my wife and I'm like, no way. Cool, you know, we're, we're sitting there just blown away. And so we get past this deer and my wife looks at me and she goes, what would you have done if that was a grizzly bear? Now, in my lifetime, I've seen grizzly bears in the wild. I've seen black bears. I've seen all kinds of things. Even on this trip, we got to see a mountain lion in the wild. Now, the good thing was I was in my car, so it made it even more special. And so it was just like, man, this is such a great trip. And so she goes, well, what would you have done? And I go, well, I don't know. I go, well, we want to protect the baby. And she goes, yeah. And I go, yeah, so I probably would have thrown you in front of the grizzly bear because I, I had the baby on my back. I had to protect the baby. So we laughed about it because she knows I really wouldn't have, that I would have probably pushed the baby and her in front of the bear. So anyways, but we're just kind of walking along and thinking about the fact that isn't it amazing, even this amazing beauty has inside of it danger absolute danger and even as we're walking along the path one time i stopped paying attention you know and i'm just like zippity doodah zippity day walking along you know looking along and i hit a stump and i thought for sure the baby and i were going (laughs) but my cat-like reflexes helped me and i saved the day and everything was cool but it's just like so quick how i just lost attention for this long and it almost fell apart now the text we're going to go to today out of ephesians 5 talks about this whole idea This idea that literally one time of us not paying attention can have dire consequences. Consequences that a lot of times people don't think are going to be that long lasting. But all of us know that we've made that one mistake that we still regret this day, don't we? 
We have that mistake that we made, or two, or three, or I know some of you like a hundred, and, and, but it's just this idea that we've made these mistakes in our past because of one wrong step at one wrong time. The other thing I was doing while I was on vacation is I was, this is the question I always ask when I'm on vacation. I always sit down and I just beg God the whole time I'm there and I just read scripture and I beg God and I ask him this, God, am I wasting my life? I just want to know right now, God, and what you have me doing and all these different things, do you believe right now I'm wasting my life? And as I was wrestling through that, I came, I was also reading a biography on a young man named Jonathan Edwards. It was talking about his early years. Now, if you don't know Jonathan Edwards, he was probably one of the most brilliant theologians of America of all time, maybe even of the English language. At the age of 14, he was already starting to ask the questions that I'm asking in my mid-30s. He was starting to beg God and ask God, God, please let me not waste my life. And especially while we have kids in here right now, let me just speak to you. Don't sell your kids short on what God can do in their life. Please. If you ever read the Bible, God did some of the biggest things through kids that you would ever imagine. In fact, it wasn't until later that a lot of times they made bonehead mistakes. Man, you look at that men like David. You look at, at these, all these just young men throughout the Bible, Joseph and, and, and Josiah, and even Mary and, and, and Joseph. Does anybody know how old they were? Probably 12 or, and between 12 and 14 when they got to have Jesus. God trusted his son with junior hires. Think about that. Wow. So if you're a junior hire in here, man, God trusts you big. See, never ever forget that God can do amazing things whoever he wants to do it through. And through this Jonathan Edwards, by the time he was 19 years old, in fact, he had constructed a life mission statement. And he called it his resolutions. And I just want to read a few of you to you today because, man, I was challenged by him. This is how he started off his resolutions. This is him at 19. Being sensible that I'm unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions that I'm making so far as they are agreeable for his will and for Christ's sake and to remember to read over these resolutions once a week. It was a young man that decided he knew that if he didn't keep these things in his forefront, these disciplines that he was going to start to lay out in his life, he knew he would forget them. And so literally from everything we understand, Jonathan Edwards read these resolutions every week for his whole life, starting at the age of 19. In fact, later on in his life, when he was a missionary to uh, some of the Native Americans and tribe up in, in northern uh, in the northeast, it talks about the fact that he was even still writing resolutions that he would read over and over. As he would ride on his horse from town to town, he would clip a few of the resolutions to his, to his jacket. He would pin them. And while he's riding along, he would pull them off and he would read one. And then he would pin it back to his jacket and read another one. He'd pin it back to his jacket and read another. Because he so wanted in his forefront this idea that he did not want to be a guy that wasted his life. He also read, he wrote this, Resolved. Never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolve to live with all my might while I live. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. In fact, if you read Jonathan Edwards, he had a preoccupation with death that was very healthy. 
He knew his time on earth was this short. He also wrote this, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done what I was supposed to do when I come to the day I die. And in fact, he kept writing papers about the fact that he wanted nothing more than if this was the last day he couldn't wait to stand in front of God. He also wrote this, to strive every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. In other words, he wanted to be a a greater follower of God this week than he was the week before. And this was one of my favorites. I frequently hear people in old age say how they would live if they had, if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved. That I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done supposing I lived at old age. Let me translate old English for you. He doesn't want to regret things when he gets old. This young man kept it in front of him and in fact as you read about this guy's life, he never ever didn't keep him in front of him. And so he became a young man that literally, I believe he probably could get to the end of his life and say, I lived the life that God had created me for. Now, Paul in Ephesians 5 is going to be talking through the same exact thing. And so if you'll open there with me, if you're not already there in Ephesians 5, let me start just reading with you, starting in uh, verse 15. Be careful. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, what he's talking about here is, is that he's going to lay it all out is because these days have treachery in them, I need to live a specific way. Now, like I talked to you about before, one of the greatest things you can teach your children and you can learn yourself is that life is full of dangers, isn't it? There's all kinds of dangers that we oftentimes don't think about, but as we get older, we start to see them, and we need to teach our children, look, beware, beware, beware. Not only that, but right before I left for vacation, it was my job, and I'm I'm supposed to be the one in my house that waters the lawn. Now, I still water the lawn with a hose, because the really godly people do, and so (laughs) it is starting to get late at night. And I can't really see anything, but I'm changing the water. So I change the water to the front and I hurry back to the backyard. And as I'm rushing back to the backyard, I'm walking along and there was two things that I forgot about. Number one, it's dark and I can't see. Number two, I have a Siberian Husky that loves to leave landmines. And I'm walking along and I'm in my sandals. And you know where I'm going now. And I just remember feeling that sensation like, that's not grass. I was not looking carefully as I went along. See, I should have flipped on the light switch in the back and I should have been looking down at my feet, understanding Siberian Huskies don't just go in one place, they go wherever they feel like. I was not living carefully. See, that word that he talks about in the very beginning of chapter 15, be very careful, takes two words. One is to see, which is this Greek word blepo, and another word akrobos, which literally means to watch with extreme care. To live life in such a way with extreme care, it's almost this idea of living circumspect. It's pulling myself back so that I can see everything. It's allowing me to see the whole situation because he's going to talk about later because the days are evil. They're full of danger. See, Paul wanted this group of people in Ephesus to understand, listen to me, life is dangerous. 
And you can make one small mistake, and that one small mistake can haunt you for the rest of your life. So be circumspect. He also goes on and says this. He says, he explains what he means by this, to walk not as unwise, but as wise. See, that word unwise, he connects this word awe to it, which you see a lot of times in the Latin and in the Greek. It's just this idea. It's the opposite of wisdom, meaning don't be a bonehead. All right? That's just simple vernacular. Don't be a bonehead. In other words, live a life with direction. Set a course and live with purpose. Don't live haphazardly. See, in my life, because I wanted to be a pastor, my goal was is to put everything into place so as I didn't live haphazardly, but I pursued that goal. See, a bunch of people are just kind of drifting through life, accomplishing this, accomplishing that, doing that, and Paul says, stop that. You need to set in line and know where you're going. Don't live as unwise. And then he says, live as wise. Now, that word wise is so interesting because what he does is he grabs this idea. Wisdom is not just knowledge. It is knowledge in practice. Now, see, I learned this as a kid that I had knowledge, but that I did not have wisdom. And it was around fixing cars. See, I'm a chemistry major, and I know tons about combustion. I know a ton about the gas laws. But if you put me underneath the hood of a car, I'd be like, yeah, nice flux capacitor there. Here you hit 86, and you go through time. Pretty amazing thing you got under that hood. That's about as far as I know, because my dad would do this. Go grab a 3.8. There you go. Go grab a quarter. And this is all I did. I just went back and forth. I knew his tool chest like the back of my hand. I had much wisdom about his tool chest. But my dad never brought me underneath that car and said, Look, Todd, I want to show you something. This is the muffler belt. (laughs) By the way, if you don't get that, you're worse off than me. Todd, over here is the horn bearing. Make sure you grease it. Todd, never ever let your blinker fluid fall below three quarters. (laughs) See, I understand combustion. In fact, I understand combustion very well. But if you put me in front of a combustion engine, I don't know anything. I have knowledge, but I don't have wisdom. See, wisdom is taking someone aside and teaching them knowledge with practice at the same time. See, those of you that have young people in here, the thing you need to do is not just pump their head full of knowledge. See, the greatest mistake that we make in our educational system and also in our churches today is we pump people full of knowledge. But knowledge without practice just creates a bunch of scary people. In fact, if you look at it, Jesus Christ knew people that were very, very knowledgeable about the scriptures in the New Testament. They called themselves Pharisees. They knew a lot, but they couldn't put it into practice. See, the thing I would say to you as parents, and I only have an 11-month-old, okay, so I'm just going off what the Bible teaches. If you want to create a Pharisee, give them knowledge without practice. If you want to create a follower of Jesus Christ, teach them how to use the knowledge. That's wisdom. Paul says, know where you're going and get the wisdom that you need to be able to accomplish this task. Gain knowledge, but use it. Practice it. Enable yourself to learn how you're going to play it out. See, if you want to be a good dad, there's only one way to be a good dad. Be with your kids. 
<gasps> you want to be a good husband? You have to be with your wife. If you want to be a good wife, you have to be with your husband. If you want to be good at whatever you do, you have to spend time doing it. See, life is about what we choose to absorb our life in and what we choose to neglect. Whatever you absorb your life in is what you will gain knowledge about and what you will gain wisdom in. I used to do a high school ministry. Let me tell you something. High school guys have phenomenal wisdom in Xbox. They will put hours and hours and hours into PlayStation 3. And they, you know, have you ever sat down and played one of those? There's like 50 million buttons, man. In my day, it was like, back, 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 back. And then all of a sudden, they're saying, no, X1, Y2. And I'm like, gosh. Must get away. But they've got wisdom about it. But see, we're not much different, are we? I've got much wisdom about ESPN. Oh boy, do I. Because I'm one of those people that can seriously watch ESPN. I can watch SportsCenter about five times in one day and still be like, oh, what was the score of the Giants-Cardinals game? I don't remember. What am I going to do? I mean, that song comes on, da-da-da-da-da-da. I'm like, oh. Oh. We've got wisdom in the internet, don't we? Oh boy, are we good at this. Don't we? See, some of you say you got carpal tunnel at work. Oh, no, you didn't. You got carpal tunnel because you're trying to get to the end of the internet. See, we get wisdom in all kinds of things and there's nothing wrong with the internet. There's nothing wrong with TV. But the thing we're going to learn later is whatever you choose to consume your time in, Paul is going to say, is what will master you. Now, if God is that person that I consume my time in, that's good because God will master me. The Bible also lays out, if you're a husband, man, become a great husband. Master husbandry. Master being a phenomenal wife. Master being a parent, because I can look in Scripture and it says, look, no, become masters of these things. If what you do for a living, I would also say to you, whatever you do, do your work heartily as in the Lord. Quit playing solitaire. (laughs) Man, get to work. When you're at work, work. When you're at home, Do family. See, the thing he's talking about, this wisdom is this ability that whatever you set your mind to at the time, that you're focused on it. The problem, the reason people are burnt out and the reason that people are are, are falling off the vine and the reason people are tired has nothing to do with anything generally other than the fact that they're allowing other things to suck up their time. Now he's going to go on and this is what he's going to say. Look at verse 17. He says, therefore, don't be foolish. Now, let me translate what that word means in Greek, that word foolish. Don't be stupid. That's what it means. Don't be stupid. What he's saying is, and the therefore points back to verses 15 and 16. He's saying, look, please, I beg you. Life has so many dangers in it. Please don't be stupid. And then he's going to say something so interesting after that. Look what he says. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The Lord's will is mainly just find out what God wants you to do. See, there's all kinds of people that are drifting through life, just kind of going wherever they're supposed to go. They think, oh, I'll go here and I'll go there. But they never bothered to look at God who created them, who knows more about them than anyone else that the Bible talks about in Ephesians 2.10 says you were created in Christ Jesus 
four good works which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them, we never bother to go, God, where should I go? See, that is stupid. It's like the little kid that never bothers to ask their parent, what should I do? It's like a parent coming in and saying, you know what, I know you like chocolate, but you should eat your peas. And the kid going, well, mom, I know you think that. (laughs) But I think I'm going to be just fine eating chocolate. Now, I'm not trying to equate God with peas, by the way. But it's this whole idea that literally we think sometimes that we know better than God. We think that his wisdom is not all-encompassing. We don't really think what he wants for us is good and pleasant and pleasing. We have in our heads somehow that if I can just keep control of my life, everything will be perfect. But all of us know, man, the moment we get control of our life, what happens? Oh, ow. It all goes wrong. Now, this understand what the will of the Lord is is so interesting because people ask me, well, how do I begin to understand the will of the Lord? Well, there's a general way, number one, which is this. This amazing book called the Bible has everything in it that we need to understand the general will of God. The Bible contains in it how I'm going to have this life of godliness. In other words, this book begins to tell me what God wants me to think like and what God wants me to do and what the Holy Spirit will do in my life and what I've been saved from and what I've been saved to. And the more that I begin to read this and read the Old Testament and find out how people not only succeeded but failed, I begin to think correctly. See, the Bible isn't there because a verse a day keeps the devil away. The Bible is here to show us how God wants us to walk. It's in there so that we can begin to understand it. See, the thing about the Bible that I was frustrated on this weekend with myself was, I think I take it lightly. And one of the things that I'm starting to do is getting prepared to teach church history over at EBC. And here's a selfless plug. If you haven't gone to EBC, you need to go to EBC. So there's my selfless plug. But as I'm studying away, something hit me about this amazing book. Early on in church history, the Roman government thought if they could just get rid of this book, they can disband the Christians. And the Christians understood that. And so what they did is they fought for everything that they had to hide the scriptures away from them because when the Romans got it or the other authorities, they would burn these amazing pieces of scripture that were written to us, that were saved for us, that we can know how to have a right relationship with God. In fact, it was talked about one of the early church fathers that was trying to protect the scriptures in front of his family had his eyeballs gouged out in an effort to try to get him to tell them where the scriptures were. Then around 500 AD, the Roman Catholic Church got a hold of this amazing book and they put it in Latin and they wouldn't let the people read it. And for a thousand years, they kept this book out of the hands of the people. But then in the 1400s, along comes this guy named John Wycliffe. And he was determined to get the Bible in the language of the people. Because he knew whenever he got the Bible in the language of the people, watch out. Because the people would start to know what God wanted them to do. A man named John Huss literally said this. He said, if I'm to be the match that strikes the fire to get the word of God in the lives of people, God, make me that match. But if you need to make me an ember, then throw me in the fire. He wrote that, and little did he know, but he got burned at the stake trying to get us this amazing book. 
Martin Luther came along and wanted to get this book into the hands of the people, the German people. See, what happens is, is when this book gets into the lives of people, amazing things start to happen. Because see, people start to find out, oh my gosh, God wants me to do that? When Josiah finally found the scriptures after they dug them out of the temple, they were just absolutely distraught that they hadn't been living like God wanted them to. And the moment they started to live like God wanted them to, amazing things started to happen. And that's why with this particular book, the thing I would say to you, please, don't treat this lightly. Not only have they been burned to death and their eyes gouged out, but I read about one man that went to the gallows getting this book to people. This book is to be treasured and loved, but not just sat up there and looked at, but to be read and enjoyed. Because see, as I read this book off these pages, I start to think like God wants me to think. But see, the one thing that's going to keep us away from truly accomplishing what God wants us to do, because see, you could know all the stories of this book and still not be anything. Because look at verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Now, what he's talking about there is just sin. Now, he takes one sin in particular called drunkenness, and he says, watch out because drunkenness will lead you into more sin, which will lead you into more sin, which will lead you into more sin. Which you've ever been drunk before, let me tell you, the moment you drink, you start to do dumb things, don't you? I mean, I remember sitting around with my drinking buddies at the bar, And the next day going, oh my gosh, what did I do? See, the thing about sin and what Paul does, he takes an extreme example, but all sin has this ability to trap us to get us to do more sin and more sin. That's called debauchery. Now, debauchery is this. When I was a kid, I was convinced. I went to this this, uh, mall in Denver, Colorado. And we walk into the store and there was this wind up little woodstock. You know, the kind you wound up and then they went ree, 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 ree. And that's all it did. But I thought, oh my goodness, if I could just get that, my life would be complete. <laughs> Dad, hark, the woodstock. I need it. My dad being a wise man said, <laughs> no. I watched my dad leave. I watched my sister leave and I pulled off my first five finger discount, if you know what I'm talking about. I slam that thing in my coat and I'm like, Woodstock. But see, I'm a terrible thief because I need to show somebody. And so I get in the back of the car, you know, and in those days you didn't have to be in the seatbelt. So my dad had took the, car, the chairs out of our Ram charger and, he, and he'd put this mattress down and my sister and I are back there playing and we're like, woo! And all of a sudden I'm like, must show her. I pulled out that and I go, and I swear it went, oh, as I open it. And it was just like, no way. And she goes, did you steal that? I go, no. Dad bought it for me. I stole and then I did what? I lied. She goes, no, he didn't. I go, yes, I did. No, he didn't. Yes, I did. No, he didn't. Yes, I did. Dad, oh, no. Todd, did you steal it? No. My dad's phenomenal. See, I had this thing growing up. If it wasn't too bad, if I told the truth, it was two lickings with the belt. But if I didn't tell the truth and my dad got it out, it was called seven. And, and uh, I was a mathematician even as a kid. I went seven minus two is five. Five less is good. Yeah, dad, I stole it. 
Now, it's so interesting what happens that even as little kids, you see that our lies suddenly begin to trap us, don't they? It's like a spider web. See, I do one sin that leads to another 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 sin. And what Paul's talking about is the moment you're in that web, it is so hard to get out of it. And it will never allow you to do all that God wants you to do because you will be hampered by it. You'll be stuck in your sin. And in fact, let me just say this right now. If there's anybody in here in a sin that you just can't seem to get out of, let me tell you something. You will never know what God's will is and you'll never know all that God has for you if you stay in that sin. And today is the day to get out of that sin. And in fact, teach your children how to get out of sin. Don't teach them to be Adam and Eve that went and hid, but teach them how to deal with their sin because sin is the greatest hamper to us being in a right relationship with God and fulfilling all that God wants us to do. But then he follows it up with something amazing. He says, do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery, but he says, instead, do something different. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, for the longest time, I struggled with what in the world that meant. In fact, I, was, I just went on my vacation. I love to watch just different TV channels when I'm on vacation. So I watched uh, TBN, which it's neither here nor there. I mean, I was just watching it. And, and one of the guys, all of a sudden, I'm kind of thinking through this. And, and a guy goes, do you want to be filled with the Spirit? And all of a sudden, I went, what's he going to do? And all of a sudden, you know, this guy comes forward and he goes, looks at him, he goes, do you want to be filled with the Spirit? You know, the guy goes, yeah, I want to be filled with the Spirit. And he grabbed his head, blew on him and like pushed him. And I thought, who's first? Huh? See, that's not what it means to be filled with the Spirit. See, Paul lays it out even in the book of Ephesians. and It has nothing to do with that. You are never going to be filled with the Spirit and have all that God wants for you, number one, if you're not saved. That's Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. You will never, ever understand God's will for your life and you will never accomplish anything that will be pleasing to God unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the only means of having that relationship is through believing in what He paid for us on that cross. The second thing it talks about, though, is, and we talked about it, I will never have a right relationship with God apart from this amazing book. In other words, if you're somebody that doesn't read Scripture, you're never going to know what God wants you to do. The other thing he talks about in Ephesians 2 and also at the end of Ephesians 1 is this whole idea, I will never know unless I have a prayer relationship with God. Now these sound like disciplines. Yes, they are. See, it is hard work, and I'm going to admit to you, for me to sit down and say, I need to read my Bible. It's a discipline. It requires me to sit down and say, God, teach me. Keep me focused. I need to stay in this. It takes time for me to get on my knees and to beg God. It's a discipline. It's also a discipline to be in right relationships with people. In Ephesians 4, 2 through 6, you will never understand the will of God until you're in a groups of people. See, the biggest lie sometimes about preaching is that sometimes people will think I'm cool just by sitting out there, hearing somebody preach, singing a few songs, and I'm all right. No, you have to be in relationship, close relationship with people, the Bible talks about. Because God not only uses Scripture and He not only uses prayer, but He uses God's people to sharpen us and help us know where God wants us to go. But something amazing happens as I start to do that. See this word, be filled with the Spirit? 
It comes from this Greek word plerao, which literally is this idea of what used to happen is they would put their giant sails up and suddenly the wind would blow into these sails. And when the wind blew into these sails, those sails would fill up and it would propel the ship where it needed to go. See, the more and more I begin to read scripture and get rid of the sin from my life and pray and get in right relationships with people, these things that the Bible calls me to do, literally I'm hoisting up my sail of life and what happens is it promises that the Spirit comes in and begins to move you. So people will say to me, well, Todd, but the Bible doesn't tell me if I'm supposed to marry Susie. And I look at them and I say this. Are you spending time in God's Word? Yes. Are you spending time in prayer? Yes. Are you in right relationships with people? Yes. Are you taking care of sin in your life? Yes. Are you saved? Yes. If those things are true in your life, do whatever you want. See, the closer and closer and closer I get to God, the more and more I know what He wants me to do, and literally it's like those sails being hoisted, it begins to push me in the direction I'm supposed to go. Pretty soon I know the jobs I'm supposed to take, not because it's like, woo. It's just this thing in which literally, though, because I know what God wants me to do and because I'm in right relationship, I'm able to make the right decisions and go the right direction. See, this whole Christianity thing isn't just about this song and this dance and showing up and raising some hands and feeling good about it. It's about all of us helping one another get into right relationship with God so that we can know where God wants to take us. And the more and more groups of people start to know where God wants to take them, watch out. See, here's the deal. See, everybody wants to know, Todd, teach me how to find God's will. And I say this to him. You don't have to find God's will. You have to find God. And when you find God, his will finds you. Todd, I want to be more loving. You don't have to be more loving. You need to find God. And when God finds you, love finds you. But Todd, holiness, I struggle with holiness. I want to find holiness. You don't have to find holiness. You need to find God. And when you find God, holiness finds you. See, I want to take all the just gunk out of your life, all these pursuits of everything, and just say this. Find God. With everything that you are, organize your life in such a way that you and your family and your friends begin to just pursue passionately those that you work with, that you need to find God. Todd, I want to be a better worker in my office. You don't need to find out how to be a better worker. You need to find God. And when God finds you, you'll become a better worker. Todd, I want to be a better parent. You don't have to, be, you don't have to find becoming better a parent. You need to find God. And when God's spirit comes into you and his word begins to impact your life, you will become a better parent. See, it's this idea that literally, when Todd tries to blow in the sails, you go nowhere. But when you open up those sails, and the Spirit of God catches them, and they get trimmed right, watch out, because that thing starts to go. What am I saying? To be filled with the Spirit is simply this. Find God. Todd, I want the supernatural. You don't have to find the supernatural. When you find God, the supernatural finds you. See, everybody wants to see a miracle. Just like in Jesus' day. Show us a miracle. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted the miracle. But those that found Jesus, you know what they found? A miracle. All of us are so afraid of a miracle sometimes. Just find God. I dare you. And miracles will find you. 
It's this whole idea that literally our job is just to become passionately in love with God, throw up those sails and say, God, take me where you want to take me. So what should I expect when I get there? Look at verse 19. Once you get there, this is what's going to happen. You will speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Literally, you will become the West Side Story. Hi, how you doing? I mean, it's just this thing. I don't understand completely why, but literally when a person truly comes into a right relationship with God, they can't help but sing. And even someone like me, who's better off mouthing words than singing words, suddenly starts to sing. I remember when I first got saved, I knew no worship songs other than one song that I learned at my grandma's church. You remember? The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for... That's the only song I knew. So I'm like, okay, I'm 21 years old. I'm driving on a lawnmower, mowing lawn fields in my summer job in between uh, uh, getting ready to go to uh, back to college. And I'm on the mower. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. You know, I'm just like, hey, because that's the only song I knew. Pretty soon I'm like using the national anthem and coming up with other songs. Oh, see, can you see Todd loves Jesus? I mean, I was just like, I didn't care. And that's what he means by spiritual songs. Pretty soon you don't even know. You're just making up songs because you're like, I just love Jesus so much. See, the natural thing that starts to happen, David, when he was down, what did he do? He sang. When he was excited, what did he do? He sang. See, there's something about it that when we're in love with Jesus out of our mouth, we not only start singing to God, but pretty soon we start singing to each other. We call each other on the phone. Hey, how you doing? Long time no see. Been praying for you. I mean, it's just this idea that literally we become the West Side Story. By the way, if you're new, okay, understand. I do things hyperbolically, all right? Okay. But it's just this idea that I can't help but to sing. But I love this part about it, especially those of us that are musically challenged. See where it says sing and make music in your heart? Aren't you glad that it's not like God bases it upon tone and not the heart. (laughs) I wouldn't be saved if you know what I'm talking about. Why is it the heart? Because the heart has to be right with God. When the heart is right with God, it can't help but sing. That's the first thing. You will know you've found God when you become songful, even though I know that's not a word. Look at the next one. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only will you be songful, but you will be thankful. Have you ever been around people that truly are in love with Jesus Christ and worked hard to try to get them to not be thankful? It's impossible. I remember one time I'm going in to pray with this lady from my last church who's getting ready to die. She's got terminal cancer. All day long I'm getting these bad phone calls and I'm like, oh, woe is me. What am I going to do? And I walk into this lady's room and as I walk in, she's got terminal cancer. She's withering away and her eyes pop open. They're like glowing. She's so excited. She goes, Todd, don't you just love Jesus? And I'm like, I didn't a second ago, but now I do. You know, I'm just like, yes. See, when somebody truly loves God, man, they're just so thankful because their lenses on life are different. She looked at me and she said this to me, and I'll never forget it. She goes, oh, I know I'm wasting away. But she goes, it won't be long, and I'll be running in heaven. See, she had on the right eyes. See, if your car breaks down, you're not going to go, whoa, my car broke down, I can't, I'm so excited. 
But what's going to happen is, is you're going to go, okay, God, I don't know what you're doing, but Romans 8, 28 tells me that you cause all things to work together for good for those who love you, who are called according to your name, and I love you. Now, we throw that verse around like trivial, like, hey, hey, hey. No, it's something to be clung to. And sometimes, let me tell you something, it's hard, isn't it? Sometimes those things we get, it's hard to be thankful about. But the reason we're not thankful is because we're not connected to Christ. It is impossible to be unthankful and connected to Christ at the same time. Because see, when I'm connected to Christ, this is what I understand. Todd deserves an eternity apart from Jesus Christ in hell. Everything else is bonus. That means no matter what comes my way, I'm not in hell. So, ba-bing. It's an awesome thing. So not only am I songful and thankful, but look at verse 21. Those who are in a right relationship with God, who are filled with the Spirit, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That word submit literally means I'm going to come underneath you and I'm going to serve you. People that are in a right relationship with God, have you ever found them, they just want to serve you all the time? And it drives you up the wall sometimes? Not really. But they just come along and they're constantly wanting to help you and constantly just loving on you and constantly knowing how can I pray for you and constantly alongside of you. You will know when you're in God's will when you suddenly find a bunch of people around you going, how can I help you? How can I pray for you? How can I serve you? You will know you're in the right relationship with God when you find yourself just looking around at others and going, how can I help you? But he says in there something interesting. He says, do it in reverence of Christ. See, the whole idea behind that is this. A lot of us say, oh, I love Jesus, but I don't really like the people that I hang out with my church. John says, then you're a liar. The greatest way to love Jesus Christ is to love his children. And don't say you love Jesus if you don't love his children. The greatest way to say I serve Christ is to serve his children. The greatest way to say I honor Christ is to honor his children. See, if Cornerstone, can you imagine this? Now, in a lot of ways, man, we are blessed. And as I travel, I understand, I can't believe it sometimes that I get to go to Cornerstone. But if ever all of us begin to get into a right relationship with God and a right relationship with other, with each other, can you imagine what God's going to do here? You're going to have a group of people that are singing all the time. Now, first of all, that'll be weird at first, but we'll get used to it. We'll be thankful all the time. There won't be any more people that are like, eh. Instead, you'll find people just excited about life. You'll find people serving. And let me tell you something. The outside world that's lost, dying, and going to hell, that is attractive like crazy. It's to come into a group of people that understand where they're going, that are singing about it and thankful about it and serving one another until God comes home. Now also, as I learned about Jonathan Edwards, was this. Jonathan Edwards lived this. And as you read the pages of his diary from the time he was 14 until the time that he died, he learned what it meant to truly be involved with a group of people that did this. The thing I've been praying for Cornerstone, and the thing I'd like for all of you to pray for Cornerstone, is this. Beg God 
the cornerstone would fall so in love with him that it affects us in such a great way that we become singful and thankful and we become also serveful, even though I know that's not a word. I just couldn't think of what to call it. And the other thing is this. Today, freak people out. Those of you that truly love Jesus, call them on the phone and go, Hi, how you doing? Pray for you today. I mean, freak them out. <laughs> the next person that walks up to you that's all just, wee, 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 look at him and go, Isn't today awesome? <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. Fourteen years ago, I was going to hell. Now I'm going to heaven. Isn't that awesome? And then just serve people like crazy. Actually call somebody up on the phone and, hey, we'd like you to come over for dinner. Hey, come on, bring something, we'll cook something too, and we'll hang out. You know, just do whatever. Bring them into your home. Serve people, love people, do things that you never imagined. If you truly love Jesus, go crazy and watch where God takes you. Watch where God takes you. Amen? Amen. Jesus, I love you so much. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for just this group of people that are gathered here today. God, I don't deserve to have this opportunity to stand in front and open your word and to tell them how amazing you are, but for some reason you chose me. Thank you. But God, nobody in this room deserved to hear what they got to hear today, the words of your scripture. It was by your grace and your grace alone that you drew us all together to hear this today. I pray that it honored you. I pray that it brought glory to you. And God, I pray Cornerstone is not the same church because of what we've read in Scripture today. I love you so much. Thank you for your gift on the cross. Thank you for not leaving us here alone, but giving us this Holy Spirit to push us forward, to show us where to go. And God, help us to be Spirit-filled people that are so in love with you that you push us in directions that are amazing. We love you so much. In your precious name, amen.